Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 68, Feast for the Mouth. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Catherine, Alfie the Sentient NPC and Florida Man. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Last time, we talked about how Māori meals were constructed and proportioned prior to their arrival in Aotearoa, and a little bit about how this changed after. Today, we will continue talking about how Māori went about making their meals after the Great Migration, mainly focusing on feasting. We should start, though, as is right, with the actual start of things, right back when Rangi and Papatuanuku were separated by their son, Tane Mahuta, Atua of the forests. You might recall that although most of Tane's brothers agreed to this course of action, there was one that didn't, Tafirimātea, Atua of wind and storms. He quite famously fought both Tane and Tangaroa, Atua of the sea, over this. In the version that I recounted all the way back in episode 8, Tefiri Matia loses that fight to Tu Mataunga, Atua of War and Creator of Humans. However, in some versions, it is the storm god that wins, not his brothers, and in those versions, he uses his nieces and nephews as food. Specifically, the children of Tane, Tangaroa, Rongomatane, and Homia Tikitiki the last two being the Atuas of cultivated and uncultivated food, respectively. This was in part to explain why certain things in the world are food and others are not, as the children of these gods are things like birds, fish, kumara and aruhe. It is also to illustrate that food is noa rather than tapu, and laid the foundations for the karakia used to make food abundant and easy to find or catch. In saying that, these karakia are often quite tapu due to their association with the various gods in question, along with many ritualised aspects of collecting and eating food. We have talked about in the past how food is noa, and as such there is special conditions around how it is used in certain very tapu conditions, since you can't just stop feeding people because they're a bit too holy right now. In such cases where a person has recently had some tāmoko work done, or they are a tonga that is just immensely tapu due to their profession, they would have someone else feed them, or use a stick so that they didn't have to touch the food. We've also talked about how food was used to remove tapu as well, by having certain people eat, or eating in certain circumstances, which all kind of ties into the idea of having feasts when there has been lots of tapu, such as porphyry, or after a marae has been built. As such, food wasn't allowed inside a marae as it was too tapu, and instead food would be prepared and eaten either outside or in a separate nearby building, a practice that still continues today. In one instance, the Takatimu waka, the waka from the great fleet that ended up in the lower South Island, was apparently so tapu that no food was to be brought on board at all. Which would have been pretty damn rough, so one would suspect that if this is true, that there was a lot of stops along the way to catch and find food at various islands. Throughout the last episode, and pretty much every other episode we've talked about food, I've mentioned the hangi, or the umu as it is known in most of the Pacific. 
If you haven't listened to some of the earlier episodes where we discussed the first two phases of Māori society in Aotearoa, you may not know what these actually are. They're a way to steam food using the natural resources provided by Papa. The way it worked is you would dig a hole in the ground, which could be bigger or smaller depending on what you were cooking and how many people you were expecting to feed. During this time, you would have some rocks in a fire to allow them to heat up, or the rocks would be placed into the pit after it was dug with the wood piled on top. This wood would then be set alight to burn down for an hour or two to heat the rocks up. Some sources don't specify any particular kind of rocks, but the best are volcanic rocks as they retain the heat better, specifically andesite and basalt. My source for that fact is the Māori TV show Hangi Pitmasters, and they sound like they would know a lot about that sort of thing, so I'm inclined to believe them. You would then place the hot rocks into the pit and some water thrown on them to clean off the ashes. Next was to wrap whatever food you were wanting to cook in leaves of your choosing. If you remember from last time, this could have a significant effect on the flavour, so it is important that you use the right leaves. In the modern day, this is usually replaced with cloth. A basket of harakeke, called a pai umu, would be placed on top of the rocks to separate them and the dirt walls of the pit from the food itself. The food parcels would then be placed in the basket and covered in some more leaves and then the pit would be filled in to trap in all the steam and cook everything. This process was fairly similar in most regions in Aotearoa. One major difference though would be if you lived in an area with a large amount of geothermal activity, basically if you lived somewhere between Taupo and Rotorua. If you were trying to make a hangi somewhere around there, you could cheat a little bit, and instead of using heated rocks, you could use the natural heat of the geothermal activity to do the steaming for you. You just needed to be a bit more selective about where you started digging. Hangi were most often used to cook larger amounts of food, things like kumara and moa, whereas smaller foods like fish were cooked on sticks over fire or wrapped in leaves and placed within the embers. Additionally, hangi were usually prepared by women, so it was their job to dig the pits, heat the rocks, and cook the food. There was also the option to cook over or in a fire as well, which was mostly done for grilling and baking. Fish and birds were put on a stick and set over the embers or some hot stones, or they could be set on a rack, or just put straight into the embers to bake, though they would usually be wrapped in leaves if this was the case. Tuna, that is, eels, various veg and cakes made of aruhe could also be cooked via baking. Boiling was also an option, by putting the kumara, for example, into a gourd with water and chucking a hot stone in with it. This was in place of the fact that Māori had no pottery, or at least none that I've seen in my research, and it would later be replaced with using metal pots, as well as hangi being replaced with European-style ovens. Though... It was noted that these methods, although faster, didn't give the food as much flavour. There were actually six methods of cooking food that Māori used prior to European arrival, which were all variations of using hangi, fires, hot stones, and boiling. Although western styles of cooking prevail in modern New Zealand, hangi are still very popular for important events, such as weddings, tangi, various hui, and other large gatherings. Or in my case, a very nice lunch at the Sunday farmer's market. On the topic of large gatherings, naturally, these would involve lots of food for all the people gathered in some form of hākari, feast. 
Gatherings like tangi, marriages, peace negotiations, or other events where guests from other hapu or iwi would be present, was a time to show off your wealth and really increase your mana by being a great host in the form of excellent manakitanga, hospitality. In fact, feasts could be held for all sorts of reasons. The birth of a high-ranked child, the dedication of a child to a particular atua, a rangatahi getting their first moko, and other important life events. Hakari could be held for the end of the major planting, or when all the kumura had been harvested, both of which were a pretty big deal, as we've talked about in the past. Especially as this all revolved around Matariki, the beginning of another year in the Māori calendar. Whare Wānanga would be opened with feasts, along with any major construction project that required outside help, such as a whare nui. Summoning allies to war, hohaurongo, making peace, the arrival of important visitors, when a runanga was held, or just feasts as utu. The possibilities for when a feast might be held was really endless. In terms of tangihanga, a feast would be held when guests arrived on the marae, along with another when the burial party returned after burying the deceased. A third feast would also be held when the bones were exhumed as well. In the 19th century, we have accounts from Europeans of what they saw when attending various feasts. Such as when food was divvied up, it would be put into various piles and each pile would be named for a particular hapu or iwi. One account from Richard Taylor, a missionary, goes, When the guests arrive, they are received with a loud welcome. And afterwards, a person, who acts as the master of ceremonies, having a rod in his hand, marches slowly along the line of food, which is generally placed in the marae, or the chief court of the pa, and then names the tribe for which each division is intended, striking it with his rod. This being done, the chief of that party receiving the food subdivides it amongst his followers. The food is then carried off to their respective homes." End quote. From the mid-19th century onwards, food would be displayed on a large, stage-like structure, which could be up to 30 metres high, with one allegedly being 3.2 kilometres long. Naturally, feasts involved a huge amount of food, and one person who was at a feast in Matamata in 1837 recorded, They have collected for the feast six large albatrosses, 19 calabashes of shark oil, several tons of fish, principally young sharks, which are esteemed by the natives as a great delicacy, upwards of 20,000 dried eels, a great quantity of hogs, and baskets of potatoes almost without number, end quote. This may be slightly exaggerated, but you get the gist. We also see feasts that involve the exchange of food from different regions, Presumably, the idea being that these foods weren't available in the opposing region, so it was a way to trade items that the other didn't have. In the following quote, we hear from people from Kaiapoi, a coastal area, meeting up with people from Rapaki, a more inland region, to exchange foods. Quote, The people from Kaiapoi might go to Rapaki carrying tuna, eel, kiori, rat, kodu, cabbage tree, kuri, dog, aruhe, fern root, kumara, sweet potato, and so on, while the home people would prepare pipi or kuku, shellfish, shark, maraki, dried fish, and other sea products as a return gift. The food was not eaten at the time, but was exchanged, and some of the Rapaki people would assist the Kayapoians to carry the Kayapoi share to that place to feast on. 
the stuff taken to Rapaki would be stored there until the carriers returned, and then would be enjoyed by all. In two or three years' time, Rapaki would carry food to a feast at Kayapoi and bring back inland food in exchange. End quote. In terms of what would actually happen at feasts, we have a few different stories of people trying to compete with or even undermine each other. The first is from the Waikato and involves a rangatira named Tuhorangi from Rotorua visiting one of his peers, Kapu Manuafiti. Typically, guests would visit for feasts during the autumn, after the harvest was completed, as naturally food was plentiful at this time, and it was a good chance to share in the fruits of everyone's labour. The guest would normally send a messenger ahead, so everything could be prepared by the time they got there. In this case though, Tuhorangi arrived in summer, a time when food was typically scarce. Which was already not great, but it didn't exactly help that he hadn't sent a messenger ahead either. Manafenua struggled to feed the Manuhiri, with Kapu Manumafiti feeling rather embarrassed that he and his people were not able to provide proper manakitanga. Again, Tuhorangi wasn't exactly the most gracious of guests. When he made a few comments on the fact that his favourite foods were preserved bird and seafood, Items that weren't exactly things you could just pop down to the dairy for if you didn't have them. Kapu Manawafiti argued this point, saying water was much better. But despite the disagreement, he invited the rangatira back for another feast early in the next summer. Since this time he knew when Tuhorangi would be arriving, even if he didn't send someone ahead of him, the Waikato chief prepared by putting aside a huge swath of food, particularly of dried seafood and preserved birds. Additionally, he moved his pa all the way up a hill, which is where the hakari would be held. When Tuhorangi arrived, he and his mates smashed the manu and kaimoana, loving every last bite. Eventually, one of the Rotorua chief's retinue was sent to find some water to quench their thirst, no doubt due to all the salty seafood. However, he struck a bit of a problem. Since the pa was on a hill, there wasn't a nearby river that he could go to, at least not one that he could reach in a timely manner and didn't involve lugging gourds up back to the pa. Funnily enough, the closest river was where the pa used to be. Once he realised that there was no water to be had, Tuhorangi begged his host to find some water urgently. Kapu Manawafiti said he was happy to oblige, but only if his guest would admit that water was indeed the best food. Presumably knowing he had been beaten, Tuhorangi conceded that yes, water was the best food, at which point Kapu Manawafiti uncovered a well that he had hidden and thus recovered his mana from the previous feast. The next story also comes from the Waikato, this time involving two brothers of noble descent, Tūrongo and Fatihua. Tūrongo, who was the younger of the two brothers, began courting Ruapu Tahanga, a high-born woman from Taranaki who was said to be quite beautiful. He wanted her to visit him, and he asked his older brother's advice about how to prepare. Unfortunately for Tūrongo, Fatihua also coveted her hand, and told his younger brother to shorten the whare he was building, as it would be too long. Tūrongo, trusting his older brother's advice, did just that, while he was gathering up enough food to feed Ruaputahanga and her entourage. 
During this time, Fatihua built a house that was much larger and much more impressive, secretly hoarding a huge amount of food within its walls. Before Tūrongo could store enough food to feed them all, Fatihua sent a message to Taranaki. The message said that Tūrongo requested Ruaputahanga to come as soon as she was able. Having no reason to doubt this, she travelled to the brother's pa, but when she arrived, she found that Tūrongo didn't have enough food for her and her mates, or even enough space to house them. That's when Fatihuya slid into her DMs with his abundance of food and much larger... house. In doing so, Ruaputahanga was won over by the older of the brothers and married him instead. It wasn't all skullduggery and rivalries though. There was also a lot of utu, in the sense of reciprocation. One such instance of this was when a rangatira, Tifatuiapiti, hosted a feast that was attended by another rangatira, Tiangiangi, who received two calabashes of preserved food as a gift over the course of the time he was visiting. In return, he hosted his own feast, but was somewhat embarrassed when Tifatuiapiti commented that it was a bit small. Whether his intention was to embarrass Tiangiangi, we aren't sure, but nonetheless, Tifatuiapiti hosted another large hakari for his chiefly friend and his people. This put Tiangiangi into great debt with Tifatuiapiti, and as such, he made plans to return the gift by hosting a much larger hakari than the last one, this time including food from Tiwaiponamu. However, this food was lost at sea. So instead, Tiangiangi gifted land to Tufatuiapiti as an appropriate exchange for his previous feast. Another shorter one this week, but we will be back next time talking all about hunting birds, rats, and how dogs were involved in our 69th episode. Nice. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the te reo Māori we have used. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon, buy merch, or give us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hari tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>